Well, thank you, Gary. And uh, if you didn't remember, it is Communion Sunday. So if you didn't pick up your communion cup, make sure you do so, because as I speak, we'll transition into communion sort of seamlessly. Um, but yeah, Gary, thank you so much. And it is, a, it is an honor to be able to uh, speak with you and to do this preparation. Um, as, any, as any pastor will tell you, when you work through this content, this material, you know, it ends up impacting my life probably far more than anybody else. And, and this is definitely a message I needed to hear myself. Uh, we are in week seven of uh, our 11-week series in parables. I say 11 because week one was really Gary kind of introducing the whole thing. But we're looking um, at Jesus' parables. These are eternal words in earthly stories. And uh, some of the parables we've looked at have so many different layers to them, haven't they? Uh, if you've been here with us, you've been tracking along. Um, Jesus explains his kingdom in multiple layers. And we saw that really well, I think, with Alan Patton and, and the parable of the soil types. And what does belief look like and how does belief take foot? We also saw in some of the parables from Jesus um, how precious salvation is, such that um, in the parables he describes someone selling everything they have to get a pearl of great price. Zach talked to us about that. Other parables introduce us to some pretty shocking concepts to be a part of the kingdom of God. The Good Samaritan was a great example of a story that helped us sort of really understand who our neighbor is, and it's not necessarily the person we like. Uh, Dave Humiston last week talked about uh, the parable of the laborers in the field and how God's grace and mercy are not given in proportion to what we deserve, thankfully, but in spite of it. And in a sense, he's saying all of us are overpaid in grace. All of us are overpaid. And so this morning we look at Luke 16, the parable of the shrewd steward. It's kind of falls into that shocking category as well. Uh, it's a parable that will surprise us a little bit. It has much to say about what the kingdom of God should look like, where we spend our time, resources, and money. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. Lord, this is, as Gary said, a privilege. Lord, it's a privilege to be able to open your word and to be able to study these parables in the way that we are. Uh, Lord, may we not just be hearers of the word this morning, but may we be doers. And whatever words fall in uh, to our ears and our hearts, Lord, that stimulate us uh, to move forward, to be more kingdom-minded and to be more like you, I pray that that would be pronounced and would come clear. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to read out of Luke chapter 16. Before we do, if you're uh, if you want to go ahead and get your Bibles open, it's Luke chapter 16. Um, two important points. Audience matters in parables. Audience matters in parables. Uh, Jesus used parables in different ways, knowing his audience type. So you saw parables this summer so far that were evangelistic in nature, um, meaning he was, he was aiming to try to change people from disbelief to, be to belief. Other parables, like we're going to see this morning, are discipleship-based, discipleship-based, meaning this parable has much to say to the church. It has much to say to those who have professed to be followers of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're kind of on the fence with who Jesus is, and maybe you're still exploring that, don't tune out. There's still truth here, and we still want you to hear, but this is an important message of discipleship to followers of Jesus, all right? So that's one. There's evangelistic and discipleship messages. This is a discipleship parable. Two, some of Jesus' parables, you can easily connect the characters back to the Father or to Jesus. 
That's not the case in this parable, all right? Don't try to connect either the master or the steward in this parable back to God or Jesus. These are characters that Jesus is really using as vehicles to get to his larger points on how uh, stewardship and how shrewdness should be applied in building out his kingdom, all right? So with that, let's read together. Again, we're in Luke chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles with you, uh, it's the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, um, about this far in, all right? All right, here we go. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, well, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much, and whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, what's going on here? Jesus uses this illustration of a manager who is called to account for wasteful abuse of the business owner's possessions, right? He's fired, so obviously he did something wrong. But what is shocking is ultimately, Jesus lands on this point that he applauds the steward for what we might understand in our culture as embezzlement, right? <laughs> what is going on here? Now remember, these are characters that are going to help us understand something about shrewdness and something about stewardship. So I wanna talk about shrewdness first. I want us to define shrewdness and actually look at this to see how Jesus defines shrewdness. Jesus is calling us here to understand shrewdness, not you know, maybe in our cultural context, the word shrewd sounds like something negative or derogatory. Jesus is saying, be aware. He's saying, be tactical, be strategic, be clever, be resourceful. We see this violation, we see this misappropriation of the master's resources, and we see the dishonest use of the owner's finances. It's now created this crisis in this manager's life. And so by setting up this crisis, Jesus can actually get a better illustration or picture of how shrewdness should work. And he does it in three ways. The first way he shows us how shrewdness uh, can work is in adversity. We see shrewdness working in adversity. Nothing sharpens this manager like the idea that he lost his job, right? He is now faced 
with the reality that he has very little skills other than his wit. So what does he fall back onto? His wit kind of falls back and leans in on the thing that he knows best. And so he further gambles with the master's possession. He actually kind of doubles down, right? He's, he was already kind of a bad manager. Now he goes in and he doubles down on it by, by lowering uh, some of these debts. And we have to understand here that Jesus knew his culture well. Jesus knew his culture well. And in the first century, it was very common for what we call reciprocity. Reciprocity is, is basically, I scratch your back, you scratch my back. I do you a favor, you do me a favor. It was commonplace. And Jesus understood the world around him. He knew how the world around him operated. And so he grabs a scenario from the world around him. And Jesus isn't excusing dishonest behavior. And we're going to get to this momentarily. But what he does show in the parable is adversity is a stimulant to shrewd thinking. So I know some of you are saying, Brandon, are you saying when I run into some problems, I should cook the books to kind of get around this? And I'm saying no. No, that's not what this is saying here at all. What I'm saying is that when you run into hardship, when you run into adversity, that should stimulate your shrewd thinking. How can this situation further build me up in Christ? Paul to the church in Corinth reminds us that perspective is incredibly important when we face adversity. He says, for just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ, meaning we're going to run into trouble. Therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're washing away or wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Don't let adversity make you a victim. Paul is saying, rush to gain perspective. Jesus overcame false accusations. He overcame unfairness. He overcame backstabbing emotional torment, and he obediently followed. Why? Because he allowed adversity to be the thing that drew out redemption. He did it because you and I were worth it, and he knew that it was a short amount of pain to pay for what would ultimately be eternity. So trust the work that God is doing in adversity in your life is to bring about some redeeming purpose. Let hardship and adversity hone you to see the possibilities of redemption. God is working all things together for good. So we see adversity brings about shrewdness. Second thing we see in here is shrewdness leverages relationships. When difficulty comes, the manager takes quick assessment of his strengths and resources. Look at verse four. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Shrewdness leverages our community. The Harvard Business Journal wrote a, a really great article this year, uh, well, it was marked, I think, a little over a year into the pandemic, titled, What a Year of Working from Home Has Done to Our Relationships at Work. And I think the the article could easily cross over to what a year from home has done to our relationships at church as well. They say a year, from, a year away from bumping into people in the office hallway, chatting about weekend plans or that big project that you're working on has affected our relationship network severely in ways I don't think we fully understand or appreciate. Those informal interactions we develop both in the church or in our workplaces and, and being out and about is called social capital. And you come to lean on social capital when you need to problem solve, don't you? When you need a helping hand with something, you tap into those resources that you have available and that, um, that you know. And people will pitch in and help each other. 
And other faces stimulate that thinking. When we don't see other faces, we don't necessarily think of each other and it's harder for us to problem solve. I'll give you an example. It's very common for me when I was in the office. I've been home now for over, a little over a year and a half. When I was in the office, if I got stuck and I couldn't, couldn't figure out what to do next, to just walk around the building. And if I, a lot of times I'd see a face and that face would remind me of a project I worked on before I'd go back and I'd pull up that information and, and all of a sudden I'd, okay, I remember, I got, I got this, I know how to do this. And we don't have that and, and, and when, we're, when we're isolated. And so when adversity strikes in your life, do you isolate yourself or do you seek the support of your community? Today is a picnic Sunday and I think this is a great opportunity to reestablish what may have been lost connections over the past couple of years. If you have gotten comfortable at home, remember as followers of Jesus, we're to always be investing in each other and living intentionally. It's not too late if you're home today to come to the picnic. It's a great opportunity. In fact, one, one slogan that caught my eye, if you've been watching the Olympics at all, is they've been showing this ad uh, from Facebook and it's, it's these skateboarders and they're on longboards and they're doing kickflips and everything else and it's kind of cool and, and it gets to the end and it says, we change the game when we find each other. We change the game when we find each other. And then that's in the context of sports, but put that in the context of church. How do we change the game when we are stronger in our relationship networks together? All right, so shrewdness emerges in adversity, uses relationships we see, and then shrewdness is mutu can be mutually beneficial. So let's take a look what Jesus is, is doing here. In his brilliance, he builds upon the cultural norms, again, of, of the worldly business climate of the day, and he puts together this scenario through the shrewd steward that sort of benefits everyone. Uh, one commentary said it this way, I thought it was real clear. This is exactly how it plays out. The manager has gained public, um, uh, public favor for himself, and for the master as a generous benefactor. If the master punishes the manager now, it would appear to the public that it were doing so because of the manager's benevolent acts. So he's kind of got him stuck, right? The criminal manager could be jailed, but he wisely stakes everything on his master's generosity. Ancient stories often portray powerful persons as appreciating and rewarding cunning, even if it's been used against them. So the amount that the manager writes off here is somewhere between 20 and 50%. But the point is, when those debts come due, in a, in a culture of reciprocity, those that, those that were debtors are going to be appreciative. They're going to be thankful. They're going to be loyal. And the, and the manager really had nothing to lose, right? He's going to lose his job anyway, so he set himself up in the future. So not being... Um, I want us to not, not look over this. Basically what the manager has done, he's covered his past transgressions and secured his future at the same time. And I think it's a great picture of what Christ does when he comes into our lives. Covers our past transgressions and secures our future. So here's the application. Jesus is not excusing sin. Rather, he gives his followers the liberty to watch and to learn from our culture. What are the opportunities for us to take what is fallen in our culture and look for redemptive elements for kingdom purposes. Not being manipulative, but in honesty and integrity, how can we use some of the cultural constructs to reorient people to Jesus? I'm not gonna solve this, but I do wanna just challenge you with this. A lot of times our, um, our tendency, when we see something we disagree with in our culture is to shut down, to isolate, to put a wall up, to not engage, to roll our eyes, to say some offhanded comment, what I think Jesus is saying and what we can see here is Jesus engaged the broken culture where it was at and he actually challenges us to know our culture, to have our ears open 
to ask ourselves, if Jesus on the cross was replacing evil with good, how do we replace evil with good in our lives? What are the conversations we're hearing? What are the TV shows we're watching? What are the movies we're watching? What are the podcasts we're listening to? What's the brokenness? How would uh, a sacrificial act into this change this or open someone's eyes to who Jesus is? Jesus asks us to lean into our culture and understand what's going on so we can be salt and light. So shrewdness, honed in adversity, it's fortified through relationships in ways that are mutually beneficial. What does it now mean for his stewards? Those of us, again, this is a parable to Jesus' followers. What does it mean for us to apply this and how do we do that? Well, he tells us now in verses nine through 13. All right, so it's gonna become a little more clear as to what Jesus is driving at. I think we also need to remember, Jesus likes to use unscrupulous characters sometimes to make his point. And if you look at Luke 18, that's a great example, right? You have this unjust judge, and you've got a woman that's persistently coming to her, going to the judge, looking for justice, and the judge continues to kind of brush her off, brush her off, and finally the judge says, okay, fine. And we look at that and we don't think, oh, Jesus is calling for judicial overhaul or tort reform, right? No, we know Jesus is talking about persistence. If an unjust judge will eventually relent, how much more will a good judge who's your father? And so Jesus is doing the same here. If people of the world can find ways to build relationships and gain favor, you as my followers do it, but do it justly and do it right and leverage and reflect the glorious kingdom that you are a part of. Because shrewdness used by the world is going to have finite benefits. Shrewdness used by Jesus' followers will have eternal benefits. And let's see how that is. Three points. Three more points. We are called by Jesus to be shrewd, imaginative, generous stewards of the kingdom. We're called to be uh, stewards of the master. Everything is the master's. We'll see how, that, how Jesus commands us there. And then we're called to be undivided stewards in our minds and with our things. All right, stewards of the kingdom. Look at verse nine. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Money is to be used for the good of others in the kingdom. Comfort can lull us into a place of complacency and it can lull us into a place of self-dependence. Money is a form of displaced power in many ways. One that Jesus actually is going to address 11 out of 40 parables will be about our stuff and how we use it. Martin Luther said, there are three conversions necessary, conversion of the heart, conversion of the mind, and conversion of the purse. Look at what Jesus says. Look at the transitive nature of, of stuff here. Use worldly wealth so that when it's gone, Jesus is making the assumption it's going away. It's gone, it's gonna be gone. Use worldly wealth, he's not saying not to use it. Use it so that when it's gone, and then look at the things that are eternal, friends and eternal dwellings. Relationships are what matter. Everything else is temporal. Everything else is temporal. How are we using our wealth? How are we using our stuff to build into relationships? That's forever. Your stuff's not gonna come with you. Um, some of you have, Remember this show that came out on Netflix a, a few years back? Uh, it's from a, a Japanese organizing consultant. Her name's Marie Kondo, and her show is called Tidying Up. Anybody remember this? Tidying Up. And what she'd do is she'd go into house after house of people with so much stuff that it was tearing them apart. Their relationships were strained. Families were fighting. People were clinging to their things. And she came in, and, and she would challenge that. 
Materialism in America, we're so, uh, we have so much that it buries us and we have to do so much keep up to, make, to maintain it. Billionaire Elon Musk has famously sold off his properties and moved into a 300 square foot portable box home because he felt the weight of his possessions slowing him down in the time he has left here. Jesus is saying to truly possess something, you keep it in proper kingdom perspective. Are we so consumed with things and the maintenance of things that we forget about our neighbor? We forget about those people in need, both in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our, in our state, in our world. The church is in deep need in other parts of the world. My grandma, 103 years old when she passed away, uh, up to the last couple of years of her death, she, she had lived in sprawling farms and, and they had all kinds of um, ranches and, and nice homes and everything. But you know what she had on her on the last few years of her life, she had a bed and a collage of pictures on her wall of faces she was just praying for that they'd be in heaven with her. Relationships matter. Hebrews 13, 14, the world is not our home. We're looking forward to an everlasting home yet to come. I like the way John Foreman says it. Do you possess your possessions or do they possess you, right? That's the question we come away with. Do the things you own orient you to other people or back to yourself? All right, let's move on. Next, we're called to be stewards of the master. Look at verses 10 through 12. Whoever can be trusted with little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So here's the big point. To be effective stewards of God's kingdom, of his people, of his church, we have to think of ourselves first and foremost as his stewards. He gives everything out, right? Whoever can be trusted, meaning there's this implication that you've been given things, you are trusted with those things because they belong to the good master. Jesus is saying worldly wealth is the litmus test to faithfulness. But this passage also reminds us of this idea of, of what we call proportional faithfulness. Proportional faithfulness. Let me try to describe it to you this way. When we first moved into my house, uh, when we mo first moved to Connecticut, 2004, we bought this nice house. It's got a nice sized backyard. What's the first thing I do? I walk out to the backyard, I look over the fence and I see this empty lot back there. And I'm like, ooh, we could buy that. We had a plenty, plenty good sized yard. My justification, my rationalization was we could have the youth group over and they could play paintball out there and, and, and they could have, you know, we could spread out, it'd be really fun. And then I started thinking through that rationalization. I wasn't even in or participating in the youth group at the church. I was, I was helping out with Awana, but we never once had the Awana kids even to our house. And I'd never even played paintball in my life. I didn't even know how to play paintball. <laughs> and so the point is this. Um, I wanted to take the reward before I had been faithful. My wife in her infinite wisdom a few years later for Father's Day recognized that I liked to have the neighbors over. She bought me a little fire pit. She rewarded something I was already doing. And so that's what this passage is saying. Don't rationalize big purchases. Start small and see if God invigorates that small step of faith forward and let him reward your faithfulness. We love to reward ourselves, don't we? self-care. We love to reward ourselves in a culture that loves to instantly gratify us. 
Let's take steps towards a faithfulness, towards his kingdom, and watch how God will use that. Maybe this week, the challenge to you or to your family is to not hit click, one, uh, one, one click to buy from Amazon. Maybe in those moments, redirect those spending urges and cravings towards what will have larger relational purposes. Or maybe it's uh, to pick up a book. I, I highly recommend this one. It's called um, Christ, Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. And even just the title's convicting by Ron Sider. Uh, it will challenge you deeply on where there's hurt within the church globally and where our resources are needed. Well, here's a different way to think about it, my last point here. You know, sometimes godliness in the church is equated with stinginess, right? Sometimes we take the stewardship thing the total opposite direction where we don't want to spend our money on anything. We just want to keep saving it and building more safety nets and more safety nets because we're, we're worried about what's going to happen, right? And Jesus may be telling you, loosen up your wallet. It's time to start giving away those safety nets. Maybe, in, maybe if you're bidding out a, kin, a, a kitchen, here's something that crossed my mind, you're bidding out a kitchen for a job, maybe it's not taking the lowest bid, maybe it's taking the highest bid because that's the person that needs to be in your house with you for three weeks, right? It's that person, not the kitchen, that's gonna go forward into eternity. All right, let's move on. My last point, we get to verse 13. Stewards, we're to be stewards undivided. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Again, 11 of 40 parables Jesus speaks about are on money. Why? Because what we spend our money on reflects deeply who we are. It really does. They go hand in hand. Jesus calls us to this undivided allegiance that his stewards are to be undivided in where they see and what they, and what they spend their money on and what they do. You know, much of our anxiety and stress comes back to this divided state of our mind. I was trying to think of something to kind of illustrate this, and, and there were four words that came to mind to me, uh, for me this morning. FOMO, YOLO, and bucket lists. Let's go through those. FOMO, fear of missing out, right? YOLO, you only live once. And bucket lists, everybody kind of knows what those are, right? It's the, thing you, the list of things you have and either written down somewhere in your head that you got to do before you kick the bucket, right? That's what we have. And those things, while those are great marketing campaigns and slogans to get people to buy Red Bull or whatever else, is slipped into our church in a way that's really detrimental really detrimental. Why do I say that? I'm not trying to rain on anybody's parade for, for how they spend or, or their bucket list. But essentially, when we experience or embrace these things, what we're doing is we're selling out the goodness and the fullness of eternity with God in short-term thinking. It shows we're clinging to this side of eternity, that what we see here has to be experienced now or we'll never have the chance at that kind of thrill, happiness, or joy when we die. I'll give you a quick example. When I was like 10 years old, and I grew up in a Christian home, I would like, before we go to Disneyland, I lived in Calif Arizona, we'd go to California to Disneyland, I'd pray like, Lord, please don't come, I wanna go to Disney World tomorrow, or Disneyland tomorrow. <laughs> That's all these things are. That's all we're doing. We're doing it now as adults. We're doing the exact same thing. And we need to come back to what David says in Psalm 16, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. 
with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Eternal pleasures, meaning the best is still to come. This is not the best. The things on your bucket list might be good, but they're shadows of the good things to come. Colossians 2. We're not living for bucket lists. We're not living in fear of missing out. We're not living and buying as if this is all there is. We're living to redeem brokenness in the world. I started thinking, what, what would Jesus' bucket list have been? And I came across this verse where Jesus cries out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, chicks under her wings and you were not willing. What's his bucket list? Restoration of his people, of his church. What if our bucket lists were a difference? What if, what if the list of, instead of a, a list of bucket list things, there were names of people we wanted to care for, a charity we wanted to commit to, a small group we wanted to start, a Sunday school class you wanted to lead, all with the hope of seeing people come to Christ. I guarantee you, Zach, Megan, Jeremy, they will talk to you at the picnic and put you to use tomorrow. These are things we can do now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, what I mean, brothers and sisters, at the time is short. From now on, those who have, had, who have wives should live as if they don't. Those who mourn as if they do not. Those who are happy if they, as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. I love that word, not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. Paul's not saying abandon your relationships, abandon your wives. He's saying recognize as Christians, the moment you start following Christ, you stepped into eternity. The moment you, followed, you decide to follow Jesus, live with urgency because the time is short. We're to be stewards undivided. We can't serve two masters. Well, again, hopefully you got your, your, your cup and your bread. We're going to transition to this now. In summary, Jesus wants his disciples to think different, to be shrewd stewards of his resources, to be kingdom-minded people, to see everything as the master's and to be undivided in our allegiance to his purposes. Endless personal accumulation is sinful and wasteful. It robs us of eternal blessing, keeps us heavily weighted down. Aside from relationships, nothing else we do with our money is going to last forever. Money will burn away. We don't want our relationships to burn away. So I'm going to leave you in a little bit of attention, intention this morning. I know some of you here are very generous, and, and this is just exciting you to, to be even more generous. And others of you have maybe not even considered this until this morning. So I'm going to leave you in this tension. And I'm going to compel you not by coercing you, but I'm going to compel you through the love and the goodness of who Jesus is. Jesus is the reordering of broken humanity. What, a what Adam failed to do in the beginning... When he trusted himself instead of trusting God, Jesus repaired on the cross for us so that we could have a relationship with him. You know, we were originally designed to be generous because we serve a God who is generous. We can see that all around. We can still see vestiges of God's goodness and the resources he's given us. He is generous. And we were designed to be generous. When Jesus said it's better to give than to receive, he's pointing back to a deep truth 
into, our, into who we are. And he's trying to remind us of who we are to be in a restored relationship with the Father. We think getting is good, but Jesus says, be a giver. I was a giver. Look how Jesus was a giver. For the sick, he healed. For the blind, he gave sight. For the hungry, he fed. For the, for the dead, he gave resurrection. For the children, he gave them his time. To the women, he gave their dignity and their honor in a culture that did not treat them as equals. To the old and discarded, he gave attention and love and value. To the disciples, he gave the secret to the kingdom of God. To those in need of forgiveness, he gave his blood on the cross. To those who want life, he instead gives you eternity. To this fallen creation, he gives us promised renewal. Jesus is the essence of generosity. And we celebrate and we remember that now. So as we take communion this morning, we remember his body, which was broken for us, and his blood, which was shed to pay the price for us. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, I invite you to take this. If you're not, we ask you not to fake it. It's okay. It's okay. But I will challenge you this morning to contemplate who is your master? Who is your master? Who are you serving? We all serve someone or something. Most of the time we're serving ourselves and we can be our hardest master to live up to. Jesus is the master that will love and care, forgive and offer mercy and grace. Paul in Corinthians reminds us as we take this, for what I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take this together. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we recognize the great pain and distress your son endured for us. Jesus, you took the weight of our sin, death, and hell to the cross so that those who put their trust in you never have to experience that. More than that, you freed us from the slavery of sin. We recognize how easily we become divided over our stuff. We repent of the way that we have abused the good things you have entrusted us, but we rejoice that you did not leave us in the state but have fully forgiven us. And you compel us now through your life in us to get on with the work of the kingdom. It's so important. Investing in people and lives, Lord, that's what you did. You gave your body for us. We give you thanks. Amen. In the same way, Paul goes on to say, he took the cup. After supper, he said, this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you for the shedding of your precious son's blood for the remission and the forgiveness of our sin that you made that sacrifice. Jesus, you established a new, conf, com, a new covenant of mercy and forgiveness that simply requires us as followers to rest and rejoice in what you have done. All guilt is gone. 
We are to live our lives with the freedom that comes from being without condemnation as your children. May we seek and serve out of the overflow and joy in our hearts of being redeemed and with our identity firmly in you. May the world know that we are Christians by our love. Thank you, God, for what you've done and for this morning together. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.